happening to have Gaurav Oberoi on from Lexian, which is a generative AI company around the legal space. Actually, something really unbelievable. He's a four-time founder, former VP of product at SurveyMonkey, talks about how to create a moat with generative AI, how to exactly do it tactically, step-by-step, breaks down a lot of other areas about product market fit, time to value. You're not going to want to miss this. Check it out. How do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to the Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley, and I have a very special guest with me today. I have Gaurav Oberoi, who is a four-time founder, three-time bootstrapped, and this one with VC Money is the CEO and co-founder of Lexian, who was previously a VP of product at SurveyMonkey, and then created an AI contract lifecycle management and workflow operations platform. Gaurav, welcome. Happy to have you on the show, man. So great to be here, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited, man. I mean, we're, I, I, like one of my favorite parts, actually, is not just recording the show, but the conversations before that we've had. So excited about what you're going to share with you, the listener because there's some really good stuff there that we're going to cover. But before we get into that, let's do a real quick revenue rundown so everybody has some context on where you're at in the stage of the journey and kind of where your company's at. So can you give us a range in terms of where you guys are at in the revenue stage? Yeah. Well, actually, no, we don't share revenue numbers perfectly, uh, publicly. However, um, I'd like to, you know, just to give you an idea of scale, um, we're a B2B SaaS company. We have several hundred customers today. The company is over 70 employees. We've raised um, $35 million in venture capital to get here. That gives you kind of an idea of where we are. We're post-Series B um, and very much uh, focused on taking the, the product that we've built and scaling it Love up that. to the next stage. Love that. Okay, so you're in the scale phase. Uh, you said 70 people on the team. Is that what I heard you say? I was trying to catch it all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. A little more than that. A little more than that. Okay. Right. Seventy that. plus. And then when we're talking, you're 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 obviously VC back. You just had your Series B in April, right? So that that right. time frame. And then let's let's talk about your high level. Just what's your revenue go to market strategy like? How do you approach the market, acquiring customers, things along those lines? Yeah. Um, so you know, maybe would would it be helpful, Ryan, if I talked a bit about what our business is um, to to well, give some context on how we actually find these. That folks? was my next. That was my next question. Is like give us like a couple sentences <laughs> understanding your solution. So you can hit us with the solution first, and then the go to market, um, and then we can get into the sure. AI stuff. Let me do that. <laughs> I think that'll provide the right context. So so we make software that help companies accelerate the entire contracting process and. You know, in fact, our software is all about any kind of document workflow that needs accelerating. And, and really what I mean by that is when you look inside a company's, you know, every department is trying to get some sort of deal through. So you have sales, obviously they're generating revenue. Those are your most important customer contracts. You're trying to bring in vendors so you can buy software that or other products that help your business do what they need. You're trying to hire employees. There's employment agreements that are there. You're trying to build partnerships. Mm -hmm. There's partnership agreements and NDAs. There's marketing agreements. All of these relationships are ultimately governed by some sort of an agreement. And when you think um, when you think contractor agreement, you immediately think, oh, legal. That's a legal team. They do that. The reality is, it's not just them. I mean, most sales agreements 
It's like, hey, um, uh, you know, head of sales, are we cool with offering this discount on hey, finance? Can we offer them quarterly payments? And oh, IT, they have these open IT questions. Can you afford oh, and product? They want this new SLA. Do you think we can agree to that or delivering this feature in time? Legal is just reviewing the legal terms, but they end up stuck doing sort of this project management and approval gathering, template generation, the back and forth negotiation, all of these things, regardless of the type of agreement, vendor, contract, employee, NDA, very similar um, workflow. And so what we do with our platform is we bring AI and automation to each step of that process. We make intake easier. You can just send in an email, say, hey, I need this thing reviewed, and we'll turn it into a line item on a dashboard so everyone knows what's going on. We help with the actual review process where we have this incredible Gen AI tool that acts as a co-pilot for lawyers and reviews contracts. And we'll, we'll maybe get into that a little later. Um, we have workflow automation so we can route approvals and, hey, the contract just got signed. Cool. Let's send an email to finance. So it goes to accounts receivable right away. Let's file a ticket to the onboarding team and let's publish a message in the Slack channel saying, hooray. You can automate all of that as soon as it's signed. We'll take care of that. Oh, and of course, push it to Salesforce so the salesperson can get their commissions. Um, and then finally, we um, and this is where we built the company at the Allen Institute for AI. Back in 2019, we built technology that can parse long-form documents and very accurately extract information. So you can come to us with you know, your 20,000 documents sitting in Google Drive or SharePoint, and we'll generate, hey, here's uh, your upcoming reminders and renewals, et cetera. So that kind of document understanding is all your documents need to live somewhere. You need to report on them. We do that. So that's what we do. Now, now I'll actually answer your question, Ryan. Like, you know, how are we going and getting these customers? So today we do enter through, um, typically through legal teams. So increasingly, we enter organizations through sales teams as well as procurement teams when we help on the vendor side. In the early days of our business, um, as we were, you know, building the product, had a product, started to uh, scale it out in the early days, we took a pretty unique strategy. And I think it's something that a lot of B2B SaaS businesses can learn from in that um, we hired the person that was effectively our first salesperson and now our chief evangelist. And this person is not a salesperson, they're a lawyer. So I brought on um, Jessica Wynn. She is our chief um, legal officer, and that by title, but really in the early days, she did a combination of being uh, the voice of the customer. So she was general counsel at Payscale. She worked at Avalara in the early days as their first lawyer. She's worked at Microsoft as a lawyer. She not only understands the job, but she understands the challenges. She has a network and community and, um, you know, she is also an incredible personality and knows how to sell. So we got super lucky in Jessica really reaching out and saying, hey, maybe we should work together. But bringing her on board allowed us in the early days to get a lot of trust from a group that really relies on references within each other in order to purchase software and understand what technologies and techniques to deploy. That she also helped us build the product and also helped us craft our messaging. You know, for instance, she would tell us like, hey, you know, lay off the AI mumbo jumbo. None of, none of your buyers care. Like, can you just start with what you're going to do for me and how that's helpful and, and help me believe that you're actually going to do it? Um, that's how you're going to get through to me. And so, you know, really helped us and myself as a, uh, a technologist and more of a product engineering founder understand those things. So early days, it was about 
bringing in a trusted person who was able to pull their network. And then it's up to us to build a phenomenal product and service to actually serve them and, and get them. The, um, the second thing was, uh, as we've started to scale, it's been partly taking her and scaling her as an evangelist. So we do, she does amazing webinars. Um, we create all sorts of great content that ties to our persona. And really, we're pushing a lot of this on social. And nowadays, the most valuable social network for B2B uh, companies is LinkedIn. It's, it's where everybody's there talking about work, and it's a great place to um, evangelize and, and really sort of share content that helps people in their jobs, which brings them to awareness of your business. Um, outbound is still a big part of our strategy. We do a lot of outbound prospecting, um, phone calls, emails, LinkedIn. Uh, but increasingly, it is about creating very high quality content that draws people back to Lexion. That's been our goal. Okay, I love approach. it, man. So you basically you had a, a go to market through a through a buyer expert. Really, is, is almost what I heard you saying, right? And then as right. as the business grew, you kind of grew her reach and, and tried to scale her, which I, I think is a great strategy, man. I mean. It's the level of domain expertise. Like, well, first of all, let me let me break this down on a couple of components. So, what you said about the legal space, like, legal was one of our, our key verticals uh, when I ran the enterprise team, and they always cared about what other people were doing. <laughs> always, 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 right? And I, I've had clients yeah. in the legal space, so the referral mechanism is highly, highly effective there. So, I, I get what you're saying there, and then yeah, I, I think it's a really sharp strategy to leverage that on LinkedIn because lawyers are, they're, they're definitely different. Um, I don't see a lot of lawyers like publishing on LinkedIn, you know, from what I've seen, it could be the rabbit hole that I'm in, in terms of content. But um, so I imagine you stand out significantly by doing that or having legal related content. on there. You know, I, I think it's beginning to change. There are, there are several um, legal influencers, if you will, um, that are on LinkedIn. And it, it, it certainly is going to be in that sort of corner of the world. So if you start to dig, you'll start to find some of these folks. But it's still early innings. Yeah. And I think um, the key here, by the way, is at the end of the day, you still have to deliver a very high quality product with high ROI. If you don't do that, this upper funnel of awareness will crumble when these referrals come around. So the referral engine is ultimately the most important thing, and that only really gets going when you deliver value. The top of the funnel here is about building trust by showcasing, hey, we, we have things we can educate you on. Jessica's written an amazing guide on how to be a GC, and she's actually giving a great webinar next week. She's uh, you know written a guide on how to negotiate data protection agreements. It's not something you learn in law school, but it's, it's first and foremost for pretty much every company today what's happening with my data. And by training people on this, giving them CLEs, giving them templates to follow up on, like, again, it shows we, we understand you, we do the work you do, you know, come and talk to us. And then of course, of course, we have to have an incredible product. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so let's talk about that a little bit more. So and I love your view on, on product when we were talking about it prior. Like, how do you view creating a product that's that's amazing, right? Like what's the framework or formula that you leverage for designing a solution like that? Cause you used to be VP of product at SurveyMonkey, correct? I was, I was. And um, 
You know, I think the best training I've had in that is bootstrapping multiple businesses and really doing the early stage from nothing exists to we have a working product, which is what we've done um, even with Lexion. You know, we started it from scratch and have brought it to, to here. Um, I think the formula is, is no different than what you'll read in Steve Blank's books or, um, you know, uh, the, any sort of like startup iteration book. It, it really is about um, spending a lot of time with your customers, spending a lot of time listening to their problems. The problem is more valuable than the solution. The more you can swim in their problems, the more you'll understand, like, what is it that actually makes them tick? Um, you need to go through this very rapid iteration of, hey, let me build you something. It could be a paper mock. It could be a barely functioning prototype. But if it solves the core problem, you're going to start getting this, this cycle of feedback. Oh, wait, oh, actually, that's kind of interesting. Can it also do this? Or, oh, wait, so you can now extract dates. Could you, could you read the thing about whether it auto renews and tell me that too? And could you put all this on a calendar? Like that would actually be interesting. And anyway, so you, you sort of go down this process of iteration. Um, I think there's a few things to keep in mind in this phase. One is everybody loves a startup. So everyone's going to want to give you positive feedback. You really need to cut through a lot of it because uh, people will often say, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, that's great. And you'll come back in a month and be like, cool, we're ready. Do you want to try it? And they're like, no, no, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. And you should go talk to my friend. Um, so you really need to listen and read between the lines. You need to get commitments for people to actually uh, kick the tires so you can start getting feedback. But you need to be honest with yourself in that it's not really when you sell your product, um, when people have paid that you've got success. It's really when you see repeat usage that you know that it's working. And you always need a core of, you know, a rabid group of people. It doesn't have to be a big number in the early days, like 10. If you have 10 rabid users that are in your product every single day, that's when you know you've got fit. Now, the next question is, is the fit in a market that's large enough? Is this segment of the audience big enough? Or are these, you know, some advanced users and nobody else cares? Those are other things you obviously have to work through. But until you have that, um, you, can't, you can't really claim that you have some sort of fit. And uh, we've really, from the early days, as a whole organization, leaned in heavily into looking at what customers are doing, talking to them repeatedly, testing our, val our, our assumptions with them to validate them, and then moving forward with building product. And it's been this incredible iterative approach that's allowed us to build a business in a red ocean market and continue to grow successfully. You know, we raised our Series B this year in April in the worst fundraising climate for Series B um, in the last decade. And we raised a great round with no structure and, and incredible investors. Um, we brought, you know, so, so all of that is a testament to us really being like, well, what is the actual problem? And hey, if we did this, what do you think? And hmm, do you really think that? Let's, let's test it in a few ways and see if you keep saying the same thing. And then, okay, we're on to something. Let's go. And like, oh, you paid us, whatever. Oh, you're using it every day? Okay, now now we know we're on to something. Yeah. And that's, that's how we do it. Love that. No, I, th I think there's a lot of gold in there. So if you did not catch all that, I'm taking notes feverishly, go back, write all that down. Let's do it, summarize it, transcribe it, whatever you need to do. Because it's, it's, it's simple, but it's hard to do, right? Like what you mentioned right there, it sounds simple when you're talking about it in nature, but 
there's a lot of grit involved in constantly going back and like getting that feedback and and creating a product sometimes that isn't exactly the way you think it's going to turn out or most of the time it's not going to wait. Hello, this is Ryan here. Real quick, if you are enjoying this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment or review. If you want more help or just want to learn more about what the top SaaS CEOs and founders are doing, check out my website at www.ryanstaley.io. Join my newsletter, check out other free content resources I have there, and let me know if you want to scale your business. Now back to the episode. Let's let's shift gears here because there's a lot to cover. So, you know, one of the other things that I'm curious on your take on is you know, there's been an I don't know a massive flood. I think there's close to eighteen thousand AI or generative AI products that that have been released this year alone. Okay, so how do you create a moat with a generative AI product? That is a question. Um every AI entrepreneur and investor is asking. And if not, then, you know, then they're, then they're, they're missing out on what is going to be central to being able to succeed in this. Um, so I, I, uh, I think in the early days when people started building products around OpenAI's API or Anthropic's API, um, you, you saw a, a flood of fairly shallow skin applications on top of these products. Oh, yeah. uh, the, the one that comes to mind for everyone is writing marketing copy. And it was like, well, you know, cool. Like I can just go to ChatGPT or like, you know, how much more are you adding here? Um, but we've seen more and more sophisticated applications of this technology. But when you sort of peel back the hood, it's like, well, what are you doing over OpenAI? Um, I think Anybody who's building a product in this space very quickly runs into the limitations of building on top of the API. The first one is your, your customer is using your product, something goes wrong, how do you improve it? So in our case, we've built uh, a, a plugin that sits right inside Microsoft Word. You can open up a contract, you know, 50-page contract you need to review. And before you open it, you just tell us, hey, in my company, these are the rules we care about when we review a vendor contract. Like, Payment terms have to be at least net 45, can't auto-renew, they can't use our logo, limitation of liability cap has to be this, governing law needs to be Washington, blah, 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 blah. You open up the contract and we're like, da, 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 we've reviewed it for you per your rules, here's the one that passed, here's the ones that didn't, and you know, here's suggested surgical red lines to fix these issues. So it's almost like a co-pilot for the lawyer. So let's just take this as an example. Um, you can build a prototype around this, now you give it to customers and customers are like, hey, um, you know, this was wrong. Okay, cool. Like, let's pr provide more generations. Hey, but I use my template multiple times. And why is it wrong every time? Like, why isn't it learning and continuing continuously improving? And if you don't have that sort of feedback loop built in, you're going to start running into issues. And a simple use of an API isn't going to give you these kinds of solutions out of the box. Another big issue is context. Oh, um, we've been reviewing contracts, you know, for years. Obviously, we have a standard playbook. We have a standard way. We have standard clauses. Uh, now that I'm using your tool, I expect you to speak like I do. I expect you to use my playbooks and my clauses. How do I teach it all that? And how do I ensure that that's happening when it's suggesting recommendations to me? So you need continuous improvement. You need uh, you need context and understanding of your business. 
Another thing you need is guardrails. So cool, you suggested a an edit. How do I know that this is not something that's hallucinated or makes no sense? Depending on the use case, you're going to have to build guardrails that'll that'll differ. In our case, the guardrails are largely sort of UX and retrieval based. It's like, hey, here's the relevant portion of the contract, so you can sort of trust, but verify and create that. Um, but ultimately, a lot of companies end up struggling with quality. Like, I think it's very easy in the early days when you're building a prototype to be impressed by the things that work and kind of be gloss over the things that don't. But as you get to production and start asking people for money and and something that they're going to incorporate into their daily use, you need to have a continuous loop where the results from these models improve, which means you have to build a lot of machinery around evaluation. You need to build evaluation sets. There's different and complex ways to evaluate these models. And then, of course, you need to build an engine that improves. Are you? And there's multiple different techniques to improve improving these models. There's, of course, fine-tuning these models. There's variations of few-shot prompting saving positive and negative examples and feeding them back in. There are um, you know, multiple techniques in which you should be saving customer and user activity to learn what's working and what isn't and feed that back into these processes. So I've said a lot of things, but I want to come back to your question, which is like, is this enough? Is there a mode around this? And the reality is, one, there is a significant mode in building all of this to build a production-ready product. Somebody who is not doing this and somebody who it, who is, customers will notice the difference because at the end of, end of the day, the work output will be significantly different and continue to improve. Related to it is my second point. I think having significant data about your users and their activity is a moat. I, I, time will tell as these models continue to improve, it'll be interesting, but already every technique that's out there to improve these results ends up looking like some form of old school supervised learning. It's not exactly. It's it's you know, it's reinforcement learning provided by human feedback, but because you can actually bootstrap a pretty good model without first having to hire a thousand people on MechTurk and 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 then train your models to be like, okay, now we have a V1, now let's go do it. No, you get something decent out of the box, but you still need to build the machinery to capture this data to improve it. And if you're a platform like ours, we have all of your contracts. We actually already have deep learning models we build in-house using our technology stack that have parsed um, clauses and, and dates and payment terms and all of this stuff. So we have this huge body of, of information about how your business already works. Because we have a workflow platform, we also see every edit that happens to every contract. We even see the emails that go back and forth. We even see how long it takes and all the little... This is amazing, amazing data that we can feed to these models to show them, hey, this is how my customer wants you to behave. This is how they treat these kinds of things. Um, so I think that is having uh, rich user data is also a great mode. So you, you need to be able to build this machinery to level up these models, which is not as much a machine learning task, though evaluation and parts of it, I think having that scientific approach is critical. But having really talented um, developers that are general full stack developers, I think, can do a lot of the this sort of infrastructure work. And then having this activity data, this is is actually a great mode. Okay, so I love it to, to massively simplify, simplify it. Right, we got like your core data elements, general full stack creation, instead of leveraging the API and building on top of it, and then essentially like the activity metrics data behind it as well uh, that tracks 
effectiveness, if you will. Right. So um, I know that's <laughs> exponentially more simplified than what you described there, but you brought up a lot of really great points. And I, I mean, I've seen that from using the tool myself that, and also building like mockups with it and seeing the differential, right? Like, especially with how fast the models are changing, the outputs, I should say, drastically change with it. Um, and so that is something that, that takes a lot of time, resources, energy that you can't really control. So makes a ton of sense. So let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about like your, your business, right? Like, and I want to kind of hit this fast because we're, we're getting close on time and I want to be sensitive to that. Yeah. What would you say is like the single best strategy that across four different companies you've seen is the best to grow a startup? Um, what has always worked for me is you need to show high value quickly. The time between somebody engaging with your product to the time they go, my problem is solved. The faster that you can show that ROI and the more clearly that you can show the ROI, the better it is for you to start that flywheel. I know this is a very product engineering founder oriented answer because, you know, I'm really thinking about the core of the business and the product, but it has served me really well. And it's given the kernel to then layer on fantastic go to market functions because you're setting them up for success. They know when someone walks in the door, they're going to be handed off to an incredible product and customer success team that are going to make them happy. And if you don't have that at its core, you have a really leaky bucket and it will get around um, in these industries. Totally makes sense. All right, now let's flip it on the other side. What would you say is the single biggest challenge that you're running into now growing the business now that you're at growth stage? Um, it's the converse of what I, you know, what I just said. It's it's all about go to market. And uh, as a, a technical founder, that is, it's not my strength. I, I know enough to get in trouble and have been able to bootstart and, and grow companies. But as we get into this stage, you know, in the early stage, you really are like a group of explorers or pirates on a ship. It's it's all about you know, success is about hustle, creativity. And doing things that might not be scalable, but like get the job done. As we come into this next stage, it actually flips. All those things that were advantages at that stage start to hold you back. It's all about repeatability, process, metrics, scalability. And, um, and so organizationally, those are some things that we need to improve and invest in. But, uh, but we also need to continuously invest in raising awareness and top of funnel awareness for us, at least today, is, is where we're spending a lot of our time. Um, middle of funnel, late funnel, when people are talking to us, our win rates are fantastic. Our, reten our retention and net retention numbers are amazing. It really is. We're at the stage where we're like, well, how do we, without blowing a ton of cash um, recklessly on, on marketing, how do we efficiently grow this? Um, and get make people aware that we're out there and they should be buying Lexi. Totally makes sense, man. And that's what I would say throughout all the interviews that I've done, that's the most common challenge that, that folks bring up. So I think uh, I think I think you're not alone. <laughs> Actually I know you're not alone with that one, right? So it's, it's always it's always that yeah. way. So all right. Well unfortunately we are up on time. I love I love, you know, I love the conversation. I love how well, a couple of things, right? How you answered the the fact about you know creating a moat, 
And then at the same time, really, really, really focusing on getting that outcome as fast as possible for your customer, which is huge, huge right now because our attention spans are shrinking at an exponential rate as well. So thanks for being on, Garo. Thank you for having me, Ryan. This was a pleasure. Yeah, where can people find you? Where can they find out more about Lexian? And then we'll we'll definitely pop that in the show notes as well so people could check you out. You write in some great content on LinkedIn and then also check out more about your company. Yeah, um, Lexion.ai, L-E-X-I-O-N.ai. Visit us. You'll be able to find me through there. Um, I'm active on LinkedIn. You can come and connect with me there and I'd be happy to respond and answer any questions. Love it. All right. Well, thank you for joining us and we will see you all on the next episode. Thank you for checking out The Scale Up Show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.